I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News, and this is The Stakes. Coming up, we take you on the road to Baton Rouge and Minneapolis. But first, as we were finishing production on this podcast Thursday night, news began to break of a mass shooting in Texas. Near the end of what had been, by all accounts, a peaceful Dallas protest march against police violence, a gunman opened fire, and he was targeting the cops. Twelve law enforcement officers, members of the Dallas Police Department and the Dallas Area Rapid Transit Police Force, were shot. Five of them died. Two civilians were also hit by gunfire. Dallas Police Chief David Brown said Friday morning that DPD has three people in custody in connection with the night's events. Another suspect was bombed to death by police following a shootout in a parking garage. He's been identified as Micah Xavier Johnson, an Army Reserves veteran. Retaliatory violence like the shootings in Dallas can be hard just to talk about, and that difficulty itself tells us something about where we as a society find ourselves in this gruesome summer of 2016. The logic of American public discourse draws false equivalencies between any two opposed events. The killing of black Americans by cops becomes one side of the narrative, and the murder of police officers by a black man becomes another opposing side. See how easily that happens? How simple it seems? If you're on one side of the political divide, say if you favor police reform and the fight against structural racism, then the first murder stands out to you as urgent evidence of a terrible flaw in our social order. If you're on the other side of the political divide, say you're reflexively inclined to trust law enforcement, then the second murder seems to give you an equal and opposite grievance. The other side does it too. For evidence of how this works, you don't have to look any further than the headline Drudge Report threw up in the aftermath of the Dallas shootings, Black Lives Kill. This is a tragedy, and I mean that in the literary sense, because simplifying the complexities of these killings for a debate that calls for two symmetrical arguments destroys our ability to think. These murders were not symmetrical. The killing of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and the killing of those five cops in Dallas took place within wildly different contexts. The murder of black Americans by law enforcement is systemic and occurs with devastating regularity. To use a terrible metaphor, it's part of the software America runs on. It will be with us until we change the underlying code. The shootings in Dallas, by contrast, were a nightmarish aberration. They may have been provoked in some fantastical way by the earlier killings, but they were the actions of, according to the best available information at the time of this recording, one individual. They aren't built into the system, and God willing, they aren't about to become so. So how do we insist on this distinction without diminishing the lives of the victims in Dallas? And how do we honor the lives of the victims in Dallas without overshadowing the victims of racist police violence? Attention in America is a zero-sum game, and the more complexly interrelated misery we have to process, the more the conversation dissolves into unstable rhetoric and mutual scorn. What's amazing here, though, is how the lines of cheap polarization in these stories break down almost as soon as you start to look, and how we go ahead and impose them anyway. Philando Castile was a licensed gun owner, yet he's not being defended by the NRA. 
Micah Xavier Johnson, the suspect in the Dallas shootings, was a military veteran who served in Afghanistan, yet that aspect of his background will be papered over by those who want to portray him as a black power radical. The Dallas Police Force. This is a story for another time, but it's one of the most progressive agencies in a major American metropolis was a peaceful presence at a peaceful protest before the shooting started, but there will still be a tendency on the left to write them off by those who cannily recognize that the way the DPD is run complicates an easy us versus them narrative, and by those who just want to yell fuck cops and act like that explains or solves anything. We are living through a moment where the forces that are trying to keep us from thinking clearly about the violence in our midst are as inescapable as the violence itself. This summer is snowballing in a way that can't help but make all parties on all sides edgy. Edgy people get jumpy. Agitation leads to mistakes. Fright puts fingers on triggers with astonishing speed. And there's not much we can do about that but keep our heads. Focus on what we really, truly can see and do know. We'll be talking more, much more, in episodes to come about the story unfolding in Dallas, the remarkable ways the Dallas Police Department has adopted reforms over the past few years, and the role technology and streaming video played in Thursday night's events. For the remainder of today's episode, though, we are going to bring you to Louisiana and Minnesota. One of the side effects of this latest mass shooting is the immediate swinging of the national spotlights away from the two other high-profile murder scenes that dominated the news midweek, and the curtailing of the discussions, vital discussions, that were springing up there. And if you rewind just a little bit further, we're still less than a month removed from the massacre in Orlando. Remember Orlando? Remember how that felt to wake up to? The ferocious rate at which human beings murder one another in this country takes stories off the board for us emotionally with a cruel quickness. So if you'll indulge us, we're going to parse through the week's atrocities in the order in which they were received. Just after midnight Monday, police shot and killed 37-year-old Alton Sterling outside a convenience store in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. According to a police press release, cops were responding to a 911 call. Sterling's death was captured on video. Two cell phone videos have circulated showing Sterling on the ground under two police officers who are yelling at him and have their guns drawn inches from his body. Then they shoot him. Then we see one of the cops reach into Sterling's right-hand pants pocket and pull out a gun. The very next day in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, just outside the Twin Cities, a cop pulled over a car with a busted taillight. 32-year-old Philando Castile was driving with his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, and her four-year-old daughter. According to Reynolds, the cop asked Castile for his license and registration, and Castile let him know he had a gun in the car, a gun he was licensed to be carrying before reaching for his identification. The cop shot him five times, and that's when Reynolds started streaming through Facebook Live. These are not the first videos we've seen of black men being killed by police although we're now at the ludicrous point where we're able to catalog them as part of an emerging genre. MTV's Ezekiel Kwaku wrote this week, I've long passed the point at which watching these videos makes me feel like a helpless bystander. I am another distance removed. At this point, I am a critic of images of men like me dying. I'm a connoisseur. 
At this point, probably safe to say you've either seen these videos already or you have no plans to see them ever. So we're going to widen our scope just a little and talk to folks on the ground in both states. First up, MTV political writer Jane Coaston called up C. Denise Marcel, the Democratic representative for Louisiana's 61st district. First and foremost, can you update me on what's happening on the ground and um, what has been kind of the latest movements and where this case is going? I believe the FBI has taken over this case, have they not? Uh, yes, the Department of Justice have come in and uh, the city have uh, turned over their investigation to them fully. And I think they're going to be assisted by the Louisiana State Police if needed. Um, I know you were among the first to point out that though the police officers involved, they were wearing body cameras, but they were off at the time. Is that correct? Uh, what, what I was told was that the body cameras fell off of the police officers and then um, I know that because I'm over the body camera committee and I pushed for the body cameras initially uh, and the pilot program that we do have in place, I know that we said we weren't going to use those body cameras, so that concerned me. Why hadn't we gone to the new uh, body cameras that don't fall off of the police officers? I was a little confused of why that happened. Talking about this incident, I know that you have um, been, you know, you, as you mentioned, you're on the body camera committee. You've been talking about these issues for a while now. Um, how did you hear about this? How did you hear about the shooting and what, you know, what happened? Can you tell, talk, kind of talk through uh, what this has been yeah. like for you? I, actually, uh, probably about 1.30 that morning, my phone started ringing and I didn't answer it. And when I got up that morning, I, I called the individuals back to find out what, what, why were they calling me that time morning. And they started to say that there was a killing in my district and um, what had happened. So a uh, young man by the name of Keon Preston, who's with Stop the Violence, is at every murder scene in Baton Rouge. And he called me and told me that I needed to get out there. And so I, from that point, I started working started reaching out to the store owner to find out the facts for myself, started speaking to people on the street and on the ground to find out really what happened. And that's when I heard that there uh, were several videos out that the police did not have. Can you talk about, you know, for people who may not be as aware, um, you know, can you tell me a little bit about Baton Rouge? Well, uh, first of all, Baton Rouge is the largest city in uh, the state of Louisiana now. Um, uh, so it's a pretty large city, uh, but the particular area that where this occurred is African-American community that I serve, um, and it's been a systemic problem uh, between the community and the police and how they address African-Americans in this area, how they police them, how they pull them over, um, when uh, they get shot or when there's a drug bust. There has been a continuous um, problem with how they addressed and approached African Americans in this particular area. So it's called North Baton Rouge, but it's more like in the center where this happened. So you mentioned that this has been a systemic problem. As far as you know, is this the first time where something like this has happened, where there's been video of it that's been kind of widely available? 
Uh, not to my knowledge, but again, um, you know, I'm thankful for social media. Um, as you've seen in Minnesota, uh, this is going to open up a lot of doors for a lot of people who have been saying all along how they were treated. And we primarily take the uh, story from the officer. And that's what it's been in, in a lot of the courtrooms. Uh, you know, the, the belief is that the officer is telling the truth. And that's what we'd like to believe because they are, uh, you know, the supposed to be serving and protecting us. So that's kind of what we want to believe. But however, that's not really how, how in all cases, it's not factual. So, so I knew that there were some problems because I'm on the ground a lot. And so I hear the concerns. I go out to a lot of the scenes. I've seen how they treat people at the crime scenes. I've, also, I've been on many of them where they talk to people really bad. And so that's why I say it's a systemic problem uh, overall, the, the way that they, they have approached this, period. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. Um, I understand it's a difficult time, um, but I really appreciate your time. Thank you again. And, and yes, and certainly we want to give our condolences to the Sterling family. They are the ones who are suffering here in this particular incident. But we had people come from all over uh, the state of Louisiana who uh, was either shot by the police or had loved ones that were killed by the police throughout the state of Louisiana, and their voices were heard on yesterday. So our condolences to the Sterling family, absolutely. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Louisiana State Representative C. Denise Marcel speaking with MTV's Jane Coaston. Now to Terry Smith, a student and campus organizer at Louisiana State University. She's speaking here with MTV political writer Marcus Ellsworth at a Thursday gathering in the Campus African American Culture Center to share information and organize a protest planned for this Sunday in downtown Baton Rouge. How did this event today come together uh, to bring all of these organizers and public figures and uh, community activists into uh, the LSU campus here at the African American Cultural Center? The event today was largely a group effort. It was something that was actually sparked out of a Google Hangout, um, out of a bunch of people who contacted one another, expressing you know the need for something something to happen right then and there. We knew we needed to start organizing. We knew we needed to start having these conversations. And so we figured that finding a, sp a space for everybody to come and express themselves and make these posters in preparation for Sunday and just be here to get the word out was the first thing to do. Um, and I think that we were blessed to have the speakers that we did have because the word traveled so fast we were able to really push this event and a lot of these people came you know by their free will we didn't have to ask them we didn't have to persuade them they were here because they knew that they needed to be um, and that's something that I'm really gracious for um, is that people could have been anywhere but took the time to come here and I also think that it was just very beneficial for the community as in they had a place to come and express themselves and make these posters in, in a peaceful place in an open space in a safe space. And how do you feel about the response in Baton Rouge in general, how the community has uh, reacted to this as they've started coming together in calls, in larger calls for justice? 
Um, the response is definitely something that um, I guess I didn't anticipate just in terms of this is something that we hear about quite often. We've seen it happen in other places, but it's always news articles or you see it on TV. But now we're, we are the story. We're in the middle of it. And I think it's been interesting to watch this unfold. And I think the most profound thing is that it's been the youth that has been making this move, um, especially with, you know, the victim of this incident being um, an older man. It's it's just it's profound to see that, you know, we are liberated, we are empowered as the youth, and we we do have a voice. And with news of so many police-related deaths and shootings, especially this week, it seems like things are just piling up one after another. Um, do you feel that the younger generation feels more urgency about this issue because of we have video of these things, we have uh, live accounts, we have people streaming it on Facebook and and tweeting up it out as it happens uh, in real time, do you think that contributes to this younger generation feeling the urgency of these issues? I would definitely agree with that. There's definitely an increased sense of urgency. Um, but I do think that sometimes social media is sometimes a blessing and a curse and just because of the fact that it does increase that urgency and that it's right there in front of our faces. We can see these things unfolding, you know, play by play as they happen. But at the same time, some of our youth use social media as a crutch. You know, they rely on retweets. They, they rely on likes to get the message out and, and don't come out and be active and, and protest and, you know, call their legislators and talk about policies. And so so um, I think if we realized how much of a power tool we had with social media, it definitely could do more than just be something that pushes urgency, but could actually be something that, you know, carries our entire movement. And what are some of those other ways? Like you mentioned uh, contacting legislators and getting out and protesting, but are there any other ways that uh, young people can actually use their energy and their the tools that they have to push for lasting, meaningful change? I think... If it were to be done outside of a time like this, um, definitely it's it's by, you know, making sure that you're educated about things and educating your friends, your peers, your family, all of that. And, and it's just about making sure that if you're coming out to the protest, bring your friends with you. You know, if you read about something that happens and you realize that it's not just and it needs to be fought for, tell your friends, have them fight with you. It's something that we need to, you know, increase our unity, our community, we need to make sure that all of us are on the same page. Um, because of course, it only takes one person to start a movement, but there's power in numbers. And so that's definitely something that, you know, with youth being so active, being so social, with having social media, is that something that we can do is hold each other accountable. As the community comes together, as more responses to this, as more strategies get built, uh, what do you hope to see as a resident of this city, as a student, as an activist yourself, what do you hope to see in the coming months and years as this goes forward? In terms of short term, I just hope to see justice. You know, um, all of these people have come out. They've expressed their condolences, their emotions. This has taken such a toll mentally, physically, spiritually on so many people that I interact with on a daily basis, even including myself. Um, and I just hope to see closure, you know, for his family, for the city, for this nation, really for everybody. Um, and long term, you know, this is not something that people are just going to wake up one day and realize what's happening. This has been happening for years. It's nothing new. Um, and so long term, I just hope that, you know, we're making history. This is something that people will look back on and say, this was, you know, an event that helped to spark this change. This is why we are where we are now. This is why we have true equality, why we can walk around as a minority and feel just as safe as everybody else, why we can walk around as a minority and feel just as welcome and as, as everybody else. So 
essentially, I just hope that, you know, we are being an active change, being part of history that is one day going to make a better world for the people who are coming after us, you know, uh, the next generation of leaders, the next generation of citizens, everybody. That was Terry Smith, an undergraduate student and activist at LSU, speaking with MTV's Marcus Ellsworth in Baton Rouge. Up next, we're headed to Minnesota, where our senior political correspondent, Anna Marie Cox, spoke with Shonda Smith-Baker of Pillsbury United Communities, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to community building in Minneapolis. So, I mean, I think, so let's break this down for people who, you know, don't live here and may not be familiar with the area. I mean, I think a lot of people have an image of Minnesota being basically white people. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously it's not. Um, In fact, there's a pretty high percentage of population of minorities in Minneapolis, correct? Minneapolis-St. Paul. There is. Um, in North Minneapolis, I know it's it's about 50% of people of color. And I guess for to get more to even more to the point, um, not only do we have a high population of African Americans here in the Twin Cities, but this is actually an incredibly segregated city, and mm-hmm. one of the segregated in the country. Is that correct? Um, it is. You know, my family has been here for generations, so some of it, obviously, it comes from uh, public policy and practices where folks of color weren't allowed to live in other parts of the city. And certainly there's redlining and other uh, housing practices and inequities that exist uh, even today that direct people into certain uh, neighborhoods. And then I think that there is the choice to live with communities that look like you and from where your family is from. So I think that there's Lots of complexity surrounding this, but certainly there's a, a history, historical context to why um, the community is as segregated as it is. And what's the history of the relationship between African Americans and um, the Twin Cities and the police? Well, I mean, you know, we've heard this story over and over, and the history has, um, you know, always been um, challenging and, and, and lacks the level of trust that I think. Um, is required for us to really be in um, a community policing, a, a relationship with the police. Um, I think that uh, the African-American community, my community, has long been stating um, engagement with police as being um, less than respectful, certainly not with all police, because I don't want to broad um, brush that. I, I do think that um, it raises a question of, are we going to continue to look at these individual incidents? Certainly we have to acknowledge them, but you know, there is a real need to address what is happening within um, the police department in terms of how they see um, the African-American community, African-American men, um, what they believe their responsibility is, and have a, a level of accountability. And I think that what we share in this experience is the fact that uh, these men are getting um, shot and killed um, with little or no reason um, to justify it. And yet there's been no accountability and no one going to jail for it. And I think as long as we sit in that place, we will continue to see it. One of the things that struck me listening to the speakers today, and there was just 
a, a lot of them. They kept coming. Um, I was struck by everyone's uh, eloquence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I had to remember that this is becoming a routine. This is becoming something that there are people have, are used to speaking at these rallies. Um, they happen all too often. And I also got the sense, though, that there was almost like a feeling of ad hoc organization happening. Like, what do we do now? The sense of desperation almost. Well, I mean, it's a, def- it's a desperate situation. Um, there's a sense of urgency um, that is required. We can't keep losing men in this way. I think that you, you know, kind of the eloquence and, and kind of they've, they've been down this, they're used to protesting is, is such a sad narrative. Um, and, you know, as I listen to you say that, I would say that what would be concerning is for the outside community to see this as an event or just another episode and for them to lose track of the systemic um, historical relationship that the African-American community has had with uh, the police department and the frequency of, of these interactions. And again, I think we began to kind of dig into the victim to see whether or not there's anything that they did immediately or in their history that would somehow justify the end of their life. And, you know, I, I think that people are very frustrated. And certainly I've gotten many, many calls from people that are interested in bringing together strategy and, and bringing forward solutions. And what are those? I mean, you, we, there's accountability, um, which we may see in individual cases, like mm-hmm. this individual officer. But obviously it is systemic. And actually, I should point out the eloquence of these speakers. I don't mean to, I mean, I, I'm, I don't mean to trivialize at all by saying I think they're used to it. What, what they're talking about is the system mm-hmm. more, more often. It's just such, it's so traumatic that I don't even know where to begin to talk about it. We need um, leadership in this community to, st- to stand up and stand out and to say that they see what is going on and they're willing to be in this fight with community. That, you know, I think that community feels the responsibility to make a system work for the community and that. Um, is is part of the role, but everybody needs to have a role in in, in solving this particular issue. Um, Philandro had a, a a great spirit, a great energy. He did not have a criminal background, and people are resonating with that. And um, and I certainly understand that. But even if that wasn't the case, as it was with Jamar Clark, who may have had some trouble in his past, um, Jamar was also undeserving of the way that he died. But I wonder, so you were just talking about the communities and standing up. You know, one thing that struck me here at this governor's mansion at the protest is, as you know, like this part of St. Paul is very white, you know, Summit Mm -hmm. Hill. And the protest is, I would say, half and half. Um, So there's a lot of white people out there and is that the community you're talking about sort of standing up and, and, and being a part of this? Is that what needs to happen? Because the black community has, as I said, they're the ones that are speaking and they're the ones who seem to have this down pat. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need we need allies in this in this. Um, I will call it a fight. We need allies in the fight. I think what, what I'm saying is that communities of color in particular, I think, are at a loss 
and are really um, beginning to organize and say, what do we need to do in order to make this better? And we really need everybody in, engaged in this, right? We need we need key leaders that have responsibility to our community to stand up and to acknowledge what is happening. And I think that as long as we keep looking at individual incidents and not look at the broader picture and the broader story of young African-American men that continue to get gunned down, um, you know, we are never going to be able to move past this and establish what we need to um, to make this not a daily reality. Yeah, I think maybe one of the most powerful things I heard today actually was from someone pointing out that if you're here today, I also want you to register to vote. You know, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. if you're here today, I need you to run for office. If you're here today, like this needs to be not just an occasion for a rally. Yep, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, understanding what our collective power is absolutely needs to happen. We need to come together as a community and say, we won't take this anymore. This just feels like a pivotal moment, as did um, Jamar Clark. We need to hear from our leaders. It would be very nice to hear from um, folks in, in position that say that they are ready to partner and be an ally in making this system work and making the relationship with the police better. Yeah, I appreciate that this is a, t- a t- it's hard to talk about. I mean, we've we've lost the language for it because it's so, I mean, it's just another day. I mean, I can't, you know, just as a, someone covering it, mm-hmm. and I'm fortunate, right, to have a, dist- a professional distance. You know, we had all hands on deck yesterday about the shooting in Baton Rouge. Yeah, yeah. And then to come home to this. It's just awful. You know, I have, I have four sons, you know, I'm leading an organization where I have responsibility for our staff and for the community that we serve. And certainly part of my role is to help address these issues. Right. And then I'm, I'm a mother that um, has four sons and, and what do I say to them and how can I keep them safe, which is what my job is to do for them. Um, and feeling uh, a bit helpless all over the map, you know, and then leading within the systems that we're working to change is is often difficult when you're in really a a state of loss, a state of grief, a state of trauma around these issues that continue to impact our community. It's not been an easy day by any means. I'm just still processing and having, uh, needing some space, I think, to do that and, and supporting others to do that as well. One thing I'll add um, before I let you go, actually, is that another thing that happened at the rally was the made clear the presence of therapists on hand to talk to people and Hmm. a lot of talk about self-care. And unfortunately, it it felt like this is something that people have now learned because it happened so often. But as one of the women who was there to offer assistance in professional capacity counseling said, this literally drives black people crazy. Mm-hmm. The, this stuff, the yeah. constant trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. And, you know, I live in the community. I'm certainly, I mean, you know, I, I have no separation from this, as you don't, as you mentioned. Maybe some distance, and, you know, we might be a different distance from it, but certainly the the daily images of violence and gun violence and this country's inability to see it beyond the partisan conversation is so disturbing at many, many levels. And it just calls into question so many things that we have 
believed, expected, deserve from our country, from our, our cities and our communities. It's true. I That video is obviously like, I think I can say it's the most graphic of mm-hmm. what's unfortunately a genre, yep. right? Um, yep. And I, I say this, I'm going to, oh God. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's the little one that got me. And continues to get me. And I've been in and out of tears. And I don't think I've had a meeting today where I have not been in that space. You know, this morning was very weird as I was responding to emails. And I couldn't even say good morning um, as an opening. Um, And when I heard it, it felt it hit me in a way that I don't think it's hit me before. Yeah, it just hit. Honestly, like, it really just hit me because I've just been in work mode. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. Mm-hmm. And what happened is as I was speaking to you about the gra- graphicness of the video, what I saw in my head was yeah. that image of him leaning over and you mm-hmm. can see the girl framed, Yeah, you know, between the seats. Yeah. It's, it's just, you know, one of the, you know, I'll tell you last night, my, um, my 21 year old was out. He went to a movie when this was all unfolding and I couldn't get a hold of him and there was something, the maternal thing in me wanted to just talk to him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's in town, he's in college and I have an 11 year old and a 13 year old that are on social media. Right. So you got all these games and all these things that they need to connect to, or they think they need to connect to. And, um, it's on YouTube. It's, it's all over these images. Right. And I say to him, you know, I need your help talking with your brother. I don't want him to see the video. And his response was, is he already saw the video. And I said, well, can you, can you talk to him for me? Uh, just ask him what he's feeling because he'll, he'll maybe share more with you. And he basically said, what can I say to him, mom? And the whole way that he said it just brought an overwhelming emotion over me to say, you know, I don't even know what to say to you. I don't even know what to, I don't even know how to process this myself. And I don't know what it means right now for me to be raising these four boys in this context. I just, I don't know what that means. And that, and that, or what it means for all of the other mothers and parents and and young people growing up in this environment and to not have the acknowledgement, right? The, the accountability of what's happening or even a discussion around what's not working. Even if, even if the police think they're right, but what is a discussion about what's not working and what we're seeing, what you saw, what I saw, you know, our reaction could be the same if it was justified, but I doubt it. And I think it was because of the innocence of that man and that cop shooting multiple times in a car with a four-year-old child and a woman with no regard for any of their lives. And praise God, they weren't all killed. That was Shonda Smith-Baker, president and CEO of Pillsbury United Communities, speaking in Minneapolis with MTV senior political correspondent, Anna Marie Cox. And as she said, there is a narrative fight going on in the government and with us in the press over police shootings of black Americans. Back in May, Louisiana's Democratic governor signed a bill extending hate crime protections to members of law enforcement. 
Similar bills are being contemplated in several other states. Our producer, Michael Catano, sat down with Charlene Carruthers, National Director of the Black Youth Project 100, to talk about how these legislative measures further divide police and the constituencies they serve. If you missed Carruthers' previous appearance on the stakes, BYP 100 is an activist member-based organization of Black 18 to 35-year-olds. I wanted to start by um, asking you to give me a little bit of background information on the bluest lie and what that means and, and how that term came about. Right. Not too long ago, we learned of the movement uh, of a bill in the state of Louisiana to basically provide protections to the police in um, an environment where they don't need more protection, where they're actually in the position where they have too much power over our lives. And so that's when we first learned about it and th this type of bill in, in Louisiana. And then shortly after that, we then learned that it popped up here in Chicago. And for us, we live in a city, right, where the, the Chicago Police Department receives about 40% of the public service budget. And that is, is, is reflective of valuable resources that our communities need and we don't get every single day. And so when we talk specifically about the bluest lie, it is yet another attempt to give more power and protection to an institution that doesn't actually keep our people safe. And, and the, one of the, the unfortunate parts to this entire story is that this ordinance was introduced by a black alderman, Alderman Burke. And so it's very clear to us once again that we have no permanent friends in government here locally in Chicago, but we do have permanent interests to make sure that our communities are the ones who are centered in the entire dialogue about safety and not the police. So correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of hate crime legislation generally is that it's a corrective measure put in place to add an additional penalty to help protect people who have traditionally been marginalized and excluded by legislative practices, by the legal process, mm -hmm. by government systems that are inherently flawed and inherently prejudicial at the institutional level, mm -hmm. systemically flawed systems, mm -hmm. that these hate crime bills are supposed to provide uh, mediation and uh, a pathway to redress for folks who are otherwise excluded. Mm -hmm. And what seems to me is that the bluest lie and these types of measures that are being taken are a complete perversion of that idea. Uh, you're taking resources away from the people that need them most and put them in the hands of the people that need them the least. That these are people that are already covered by uh, legislation, that there already are extra measures in place to protect police and first responders in most of these places, and that by switching that power dynamic around and giving extra measures of protection to the people who need it least, you're further driving a wedge between the communities that are being policed and the group of people that are doing the policing. And that's why it's called the bluest lie. Um, and that 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 saying comes from a coalition of young black folks here in the city of Chicago and not just from folks from BYP 100. That's what's dangerous about it. It's a lie. And when we tell lies, they impact people's lives. And telling the story that the police need more protection actually puts folks who are in a position of being the least protected in our communities and, and at risk. And it absolutely will impact the ways in which we can engage in protests and direct actions and demonstrations. Here in Chicago, um, the organizing that we do is very confrontational. We are unapologetic about saying that you know the power that we're building is not the type of power that the police hold and the type of power that police hold is not what we need. And so 
we need more protections to actually exercise the, the rights that the Constitution says that we have you know, around the right to assemble. But the bluest lie, it, it flies in the face of our ability to uh, not only be protected through protests, but also our ability to be, to be safe in our communities. The police surveil, monitor the neighborhood that I live in all day. And one could imagine this, the, the range of things that they could charge to saying that um, this person has attacked a police officer, this person has uh, committed a hate crime against a police officer. It completely flips the reality and that's dangerous to our everyday lives. Is there a perception in your community that these types of measures that are being uh, undertaken in Chicago, Louisiana and places across the U.S. right now, mm -hmm. is there a perception th that these legislative measures are a direct response to Black Lives Matter? Oh, ab absolutely. These, the measures, be it uh, the bluest lie here in Chicago, the legislation that was passed in the state of Louisiana, these are in reaction of the power that we are building across this country um, that is led by young black folks young black folks who are a part of organizations and young black folks who aren't a part of organizations, right? People who hit the streets, people who amplify the story and social media. When people organize, be it the, and history tells us, be it the folks from MOVE in Philadelphia, right? Or be it um, the folks who took to the streets um, after the video was released of Laquan McDonald's execution, the young people who hit the streets after Mike Brown was executed. The state responds with violence when black people organize. And so the bluest lie is one manifestation of state violence, right? And even if the ordinance doesn't pass, we still have a, a narrative, a story battle to fight to say, actually, the people who need to be protected are everyday folks who aren't walking around with uh, legally sanctioned guns and protected guns that are protected by the state. That our folks, as we just saw in Minnesota, we just learned in Minnesota, the right to bear arms doesn't apply to black people. And so I expect to see more of these things pop up that thread this story that the police are in danger, they're armed, and even when black people are armed, we can be killed. We have that battle to fight regardless of the, the, whether the ordinance is passed or not. You bring up Philando Castile um, and the case that's unfolding right now mm -hmm. in Minneapolis, and that mm -hmm. to me is a, a particularly enraging, I guess for lack of a better word, yeah. that y you have a, a community that has pushed hard for uh, concealed carry legislation, mm -hmm. that gun rights are uh, an important issue to the citizens of mm -hmm. Minnesota, but still the authorities put in place to police that community don't have the training, don't have the equipment, don't mm -hmm. have the resources to deal with the community that is armed by will of that community, mm -hmm. that they're allowing for guns to be present in the community without giving proper training to police mm -hmm. to know how to respond to those situations. Right. Uh, it would make sense to me that a police officer in Minneapolis would expect every person he encounters to be armed. When black folks bear arms, even when they are legal, legally acquired, legally held, the state will respond and automatically assume that we are engaged in criminal activity. And that's how mass criminalization works, right? Some black folks can walk down the street with an ice, a can of iced tea and Skittles and a hoodie on as Trayvon Martin did in Sanford, Florida and be deemed a criminal and then have their lives taken. And so what we know to be true is that what it means to be a citizen in the United States of America for black people is not the same as what it means for everyone else.
the sad reality, the the, the hurtful uh, reality is that this disproportionately happens to black folks who are like who live in communities that are also under resourced, poor black folks, black folks who who are unemployed, because you know people like to lift up the examples of like the elites like Henry Louis Gates and other upper middle class black people, but this is disproportionately impacting black folks who don't have access to the things that middle class people have access to. And so I think that's important to lift up. It costs money to get a concealed carry weapon um, license as well, right? It costs resources. And so there was a lot of intentionality um, that, that we have to engage in as black people. And even when we do, even when we get those licenses, even when we go through, we have to, we do everything we're supposed to do. We can still have our lives taken by the state and by the police. You bring up the lack of resources Mm -hmm. and how that affects communities of color and their relationship with the police. Mm -hmm. And I think that this expansion of hate crime laws to include first responders, police officers, further taps those resources in a way that's not immediately apparent in that a hate crime conviction is a very complicated legal case that a, a public defender who's working on that case, those are resources that are taken away from other people in need in those communities. Mm-hmm. That what, uh, a defender, a public defender who's working on a hate crime case doesn't have as much time to devote to a stop and frisk, right. to getting a petty theft conviction overturned, to throwing right. out a bogus drug charge. Right. That as much as this is a, um, a very obvious form of further institutionalizing racism and the division between communities and police, mm-hmm. I think it also affects things on a much sneakier and potentially more dangerous level as well. Is that something that you guys are, are confronting? For us, like where the rubber meets the road is, do our people have what we need? The answer is no. We do not have what we need. Some of us may ha- have more and do have what we need, but the, over, the majority of black folks do not have what it is that that we need in order to thrive. And in places like Chicago, New York City, Oakland, um, Milwaukee even, the millions, of hundreds of millions of dollars that is spent on policing. And then we look at our schools that are crumbling, our, our young people who can't read, our young people who are not set up to succeed in the world in the way that they want to succeed and live in the way that they want to live. It, it's very clear that something is wrong here and something has been wrong for a long time and that we are poised to change that, right? That, that there's an, the energy is there and that we stand in a legacy of black folks who have uh, activists, leaders, poets, all types of organizers who have a deeper vision for our people and are willing to fight for it. And the bluest lie is just one more trick, one more tactic of people who, who do not have our best interests in mind. That was Charlene Carruthers, National Director of Black Youth Project 100, speaking to producer Michael Catano in Chicago. We're returning now to MTV's Marcus Ellsworth at LSU, where he spoke with Lakeitha Poole, the Assistant Director of the Office of Multicultural Affairs and Coordinator of African American Student Affairs at LSU's African American Cultural Center. They're discussing the ground-level effects she's seen on the student body from events like the killing of Alton Sterling. Working with the students here on a day-to-day basis, how have you seen the news of Alton Sterling's murder affect them? It's definitely something that I think is is sombering, um, but also in some ways, which is kind of sad, nothing new. So many of our students, you know, 
in, in the days and hours following um, the events were upset, obviously, but also sort of like it's another week where we're having to create this hashtag um, based on something that's happening to someone who looks like us. And so um, I think in, if I think about two years ago when Trayvon Martin first happened, the sort of emotion around that was probably a lot more bolder and shocking because it seemed like something that wasn't as out there. But in the last two years, we could run down a list probably of people um, who we've had to create these hashtags and marches and, and, and things around to the point where this time around, people are obviously upset, but also still very much in a place where they feel like, how many times is this going to happen? They're almost burdened more than, than being emotionally upset. And do you think that the news of these, you know, police-involved shootings and murders. Do you think that's driving more involvement? Because there's a huge crowd here today, much larger than y'all expected. You you had to borrow the women's center right next door for space just for people to make signs, and you had to move the speakers and everyone outside the buildings just to fit everyone in the space, because you couldn't fit everyone in the space. Um, So do you think seeing this all the time, seeing this is something that never goes away, that as soon as the public becomes aware of one situation and starts moving on that, the next one hits. And especially this week, it seems that every day this week there has been another news story. Um, So do you think that's part of what's driving this involvement? I think so, for sure. Um, I think at some point people just get tired of of having that be the case for um, their communities, their cities, their states, for our country. And so um, after so long, you can only sit and be docile for for a moment. Um, That eventually goes away. And I think at this point, having, like you said, this week in particular, where things have sort of happened back to back, have stirred up emotions in people to make them think like, this is enough and I need to do something. And so um, I think in this point in time in particular, because we have the influence of social media and we have all these other things now that um, allow us to get messages out quickly, um, we're able to see that there is much more of a, a movement that even us as, as a place that's supposed to sort of encourage students and, and build their leadership and all those things, that's way bigger than the power and the influence that we have. So um, today was great to be able to see that many people just from literally a student's idea. As far as the community response in Baton Rouge, uh, how do you feel your city's handling this? I think it's a mix. I think for sure um, there have been a mixed response. So I think many people are very pleased that immediately upon things happening, our new governor came out and he spoke and he called, he used the word tragedy, which many of our officials around the country when things have happened have not directly um, sort of stated that, stated the facts that someone someone's life is over um, and that that sort of has to be something that we acknowledge and and the legal part obviously still has to take place but um, that was something for me as someone who he's our new governor he hasn't been around that long and for him to sort of be um, vocal about that was was a proud moment I guess for the state of Louisiana in general Um, and then Baton Rouge is the capital so that's that's a good thing but then I think on the other side, we still see some of the problems that are just a smaller microcosm of what's happening in the nation through social media, through messages that we get of community people who maybe don't identify with the, the community who is affected most probably by this tragedy with negative talk, with, um, you know, sort of pushback for wanting things to change. So in some ways, it's very mixed. 
um, some some proud moments, but then also moments where you're just like, we still don't get it. And those are the times where we, I guess we also get reinvigorated to know the fight's not over. We have to do things like marches and protests and talks and vote and all of those things to make sure that everyone sort of gets the message without feeling like it's a threat for there to be equality among everyone. Well, and it certainly feels like Baton Rouge has been responding on all fronts to this, um, regardless as the city comes to a consensus. I mean, this is fresh. This just happened. This is just waking people up. Um, but it's interesting you brought up the governor. I mean, considering his predecessor, um, it's yeah. definitely a sign for <laughs> potential for progress. Oh, absolutely. I think I was actually just talking to one of our, uh, he's an alum now, but a, a former student, a younger student who was here and just saying like, that's a way different response than we would have gotten a year ago. Um, I don't know if we would have gotten something maybe televised um, with our, our former governor saying, um, you know, that his heart goes out to the family, to the community. Um, I'm sure there would have been something, but I don't think that it would have looked like that. And so I think if nothing else, I agree with you in that that in itself is progress to say that we have that sort of backing, at least at that level, um, where we we won't have you know officials who are silent. Since this is going to be going out to a very wide audience across the country, uh, is there anything that you as a resident of Baton Rouge, as a woman who is a leader at one of the most famous universities in the state, um, is there anything you'd like to put out there to young people, especially those working in colleges and who are part of these communities that are being impacted by violence and who are being inundated with it? Is there anything you'd like to impart to that group of people? Just to continue to stand for what you believe in. Um, I think as um, a nation who, you know, hasn't always been, has a history of, of, of doing things the right way, there's always time to get it right. And so I hope that anyone who is seeing what's happening here or seeing what's happening in the rest of the country, while the burden I know is hard for many people to bear, not just for people of color or people who identify with the the victims that we're seeing, but for the nation to be able to recognize that there is still opportunity for us to get this right. So I hope that if nothing else, people will decide um, to stand for something. So one of my favorite quotes is Malcolm X saying, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And so if you allow, if we allow ourselves to become complacent in where we are because it's hard to bear, we'll never really see that change. And I know it's hard, but I hope that students, that administrators, that people at home will see what's happening and feel something to the point where they determine what is their place in making change happen. Everyone can't march. Everyone can't, um, you know, start a social media campaign that becomes this trending thing. Um, but everyone can do something. Kind gestures are, are even enough. So thinking about what's your place in this whole thing is what I hope people will take from what's happening. That was LSU's Lakeitha Poole speaking to MTV's Marcus Ellsworth in Baton Rouge leaving us with a question we all need to answer very carefully for ourselves. I'm Holly Anderson, and that's it for The Stakes this week. We'll be back with you early next week. We're planning a Monday release of the episode we'd originally planned to do today. Tune in then, and thank you, all of you, for being with us today. Stay as safe as you can out there, and take care of each other. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network. 
with additional reporting by MTV's Brian Phillips. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.